During my career as a filmmaker, I spent many months filming in hospitals. In Africa, Ukraine, Germany. It's a universe in itself where life is distilled down to its bare essence. Sometimes tragic, sometimes immensely humane. And then there are the doctors, who have to deal with the brutal randomness of who can live and who will die. There have been so many moving stories that I often thought every doctor should also be a writer. Fortunately, some of them are. And one of the best is neurosurgeon Henry Marsh. Henry wrote best-selling books about his work operating on, well, brains. Actually, I remember only my failures, not my successes, he told me when I sat down with him in his kitchen in South Wimbledon. In his latest book, and finally, Henry talks about being diagnosed with prostate cancer and his journey from being one of the best neurosurgeons of his time to becoming just another patient. Henry may have only a limited time to live, but in our conversation he looks back on a life he finds complete. This is Close Up and my guest today is Henry Marsh. Henry, so here we are in South Wimbledon. It's a pleasure. You say you reach the end of your life. You you have maybe a difficult time ahead, but you're not thinking about the future anymore. You have a sort of zen. You live in the present. You yeah, no, much, much to my surprise, um, I'm not worrying about what lies ahead of me. Firstly, in two week, three weeks' time, I'll have the first PSA test for my prostate cancer since finished stopping hormone therapy, which mm. essentially is chemical castration, which has a lot of side effects. And the obvious ones like loss of interest in sex and impotence didn't trouble me at all. But what did trouble me was, was feeling tired all the time, which I didn't like. And I think a major disturbance of my mood, which I attributed to worrying about the cancer and everything else. But I, I've stopped the treatment. I probably will have to go back on it at some point. And I've been feeling really very well for the last few weeks. And what, much to my surprise, all my life I've been a driven, anxious person, worrying about the future, stressing myself, achieving quite a lot <laughs> on the way. But now I, I'm quite content. I'm very happy with the present. The present feels safe. And I like the phrase, no, the future doesn't exist. Why worry about the future? Now, Although in theory I accepted that, yeah. it's, it's silly to worry about the future. Now I'm really quite zen. I'm most surprised. I'm not looking forward to my PSA test in three weeks' time. I'm not denying it, but I think, well, waste of time thinking about that. I shall enjoy myself here and now. The present is safe. I feel safe in the present. You are one of the most accomplished neurosurgeons of your time. Could you have achieved everything with that sort of attitude? No, <laughs> not at all. I was deeply ambitious. My, my second wife, Kate Fox, <clears throat> who's an anthropologist, we've been together now 24 years, and she says, Henry, you're a typical alpha male, <laughs> silverback gorilla. <laughs> and I, I don't think I was positively unpleasant when I was younger, but I certainly was very pushy, very ambitious, trampled on people a bit uh, to get to the top. I was, I gave, uh, I was lecturing some 
medical students yesterday, and one of them asked, you know, looking back on yourself now, they, what, what do you think you were like? And I said, well, it's hard to know, but I reckon I was really quite arrogant, and I came from a very privileged private, or so leading private school, mm. education, Oxford University, very, very privileged. And I think for a long time, I kind of took that all for granted. Um, in old age now, I don't. And I feel increasingly, looking back on my life, how incredibly lucky I was. And there's all this neuroscience we know now about the critical effect of the first few years of your life and that Harvard study in Romanian orphanages comparing fostered orphans with orphans still in the orphanages. And now the kids in the orphanages, although they get fed and dressed, basically do not have loving, close human relationships with adults. And they suffer terribly. They're, so they're off to a bad start. They're off to a bad start. They have smaller brains and you know they have ill health. And it dictates poor health, both physical and mental, in later life. People, I realize, you know, I, I do hate these successful self-made millionaires who say, you know, I work very hard and it's all my achievement. To which I say, no, you were lucky. You were able to work hard. You were lucky. You worked in a society where hard, like, hard work like yours was rewarded. People are working terribly hard all over the world. And they never have the opportunity. And get, get nothing. You know? Yes. So luck is very important. And of course, if you, once you accept that for your own success and without false modesty, I've been, you know, I've been very successful. If you understand it's, a lot of it's luck, luck in your parents, in your DNA. Mm. I had a fantastic education. You know, it, it imposes on you a moral obligation to try to help other people a bit. I want to start off also with a quote, which is mm. at the beginning of one of your books, Do No Harm, is the title of the book. Do No Harm actually is a quote attributed to Hippocrates. Yes, he never yeah. said it. But, um. but yes. And the quote says, I'm just going to recite it off the top of my head, that every surgeon has a cemetery where he goes from time to time to, well, to remember his failures. Do you have such a cemetery? Do you yes, have such a very, very much so. <clears throat> that was written by the French surgeon René Leriche. I wish I'd written it myself. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's, quote. it's brilliant. Um, yes, I do. Uh, and um, if you do very dangerous surgery, as, I, as neurosurgery is, and I specialized in doing big, difficult operations, because mm -hmm. I find that exciting, um, the cemetery slowly gets bigger over the years. And although as you get more experienced, you get better at operating, above all, you get better at knowing when not to operate. That's the way you avoid catastrophic That's mistakes. That's the crucial skill to have. Very much so. When not to operate. When not to operate. Mm. Um, nevertheless, as you, know, as you become more senior and more well-known, you end up doing more and more dangerous operations. Mm. So the cemetery still goes on getting bigger. Um, and we have all sorts of psychological mechanisms of self-defense to kind of hide our eyes from the cemetery, which I was probably better than some surgeons at looking, going on guided tours. Well, the books are guided tours around the cemetery, but I was fairly good at it is, yes. going, going around the cemetery myself. But one of the very interesting things about my diagnosis of cancer. Well, there were two things surprised me. It didn't surprise me 
how it's so unpleasant to be a patient. I knew that already, mm. that being a patient is a frightening, demeaning, disempowering experience. But the doctor-patient relationship is deeply unequal, and a lot of it's all about power. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of doctors don't admit that to themselves and rather relish the power they have over patients. But two things surprised me. Firstly, I was genuinely surprised and shocked I had cancer. The delusion so many doctors have, it's a necessary delusion, that illness happens to patients, not to doctors. This is process of detachment and separation. And you didn't even do your checkups. And no, I was in denial about that, exactly. You know, I had, I'd had significant prostatic symptoms for a long time. And you knew it? Yeah, but I kind of was in a state of what is called hysterical dissociation. Denial, you know. It's what you would tell your patients, hey, don't do that, don't yeah, be yeah, exactly. And you, you yeah, did it yeah. yourself. So yeah. that was the first thing that surprised me. I was genuinely surprised I had cancer, which was, on the face of it, ridiculous, because I'd spent 40 years seeing patients with cancer. Yes. A lot of my work was to do with brain tumors, and the commonest brain tumors are cancerous. But the other thing that surprised me, I went through a period of about two or three weeks when I'd been diagnosed with this insanely high PSA of 130. PSA is a marker for... It's a marker for the cancer. Mm. Normally, it should be less than one. Sort of most cancers is up to 20. Mine was 130. I'm rather perversely <laughs> proud of that. Proud of that. <laughs> Only 4% of men have a PSA that high. And 75% of them are dead in less than five years. And I went through a period of two or, two, two or three weeks waiting for the results of all the various scans, which would show whether I actually had very widespread disseminated cancer or mm. not, which would certainly mean I'd only have a short time to live. Um, in the event I don't, it's only locally invasive. And although it probably will kill me, it may take some years, and <clears throat> I suppose I might even be cured, but I, I'm almost indifferent to that. And... Um, During this very, very anxious period when I was terrified and very stressed, I started remembering even more patients. Like there were, the cemetery was much, much bigger than I realized. So unconsciously, all sorts of memories came back. Patients were like ghosts. They weren't so accusing me, but I remembered all sorts of patients who I'd totally forgotten or repressed from conscious memory. Patients from 20, 30 years ago where I felt I'd failed. It, not necessarily that I'd made a serious mistake, but just I'd failed. And in neurosurgery, you fail very often, yes. given the nature of the vulnerability of the brain. I think <clears throat> the rather pathetic reason for this memory was at a sort of deep, childish, unconscious level. I felt, you know, if all these patients forgive me, I will be all right, you know. But it was also, now that I was a terribly frightened, anxious patient myself, uh, I, you know, it brought home to me just how little I had understood, how little insight I had mm. into what my patients were going through, because I had to be detached. And whereas during the years of my work, I thought, well, I, I thought I was a kind, sympathetic doctor, and, you know, my son had had a brain tumor as a child, so I understood what it was like things like that, I, I was then full of doubt. And I, you know, it's it, one of the big problems about being a doctor, which I think many doctors and patients don't understand, 
is you never get criticized for the way you talk to patients. Now, you never dare to criticize a doctor for the way he talks to you or she talks to you because you're, you don't want to displease them. You know, you're so dependent upon them, particularly with surgeons, where you know, your life literally depends on that surgeon. Um, so it's very difficult to learn how to talk to patients because you're never criticized. In most things in life, we get good at doing it by doing it again and again, getting criticized, looking at it, doing better next time. And most doctors, I suspect, including myself, have a rather rose-tinted view of how nice they were. <laughs> and you were, because your books are, there are lots of um, patient stories from your perspective, some tragic stories, some stories that have a happy ending. If you go back to your former self, and you were very critical with your former self. Were you a difficult colleague and a difficult boss? And because now you you said something before, you you wish some of your patients in your cemetery would forgive you. I mean, forgive you is something you always try to help. You didn't you didn't really intentionally harm them. No. No. But you have that feeling of I think all all doctors have a burden of guilt. Uh, you know, it is so We are, most of us, are so anxious to help our patients. It's bitter disappointment when we fail, and you feel guilty. I mean, sometimes you actually made a careless mistake. Yes, we're human beings. We make careless mistakes. We But that's not enough for you, it. No, as an no. excuse. No. You're like, no. I did that operation. I haven't slept. No. Uh, I, I am overworked. I made yeah. that mistake. And sometimes it's a, it's a cut too far. Well, you have to get on with things. And you have to forgive yourself mm. to the extent you have to go on working. And the, the critical thing about when things go badly is first, the most difficult thing is maintaining a trusting relationship with the patient and the patient's family yes. if the patient survived. Um, that's the most difficult bit. But the other difficult bit is being honest with yourself and saying, what will I do differently next time? And being honest with your colleagues and trainees so they will learn from your mistake as well. That's the real, that, those are the challenges of when things go badly. And inevitably in medicine, things will go badly. Mm. But doctors do find it very, very difficult to be honest because we feel... Shame, guilt, fear, when things go badly. And if you work in countries like Ukraine and Nepal, where I've worked for many years, where basically the doctors are all in private practice, even if they're working in the state sector. You know, you're worried if, if people hear about your mistakes, you'll lose income. You know, you'll, it'll damage so you cover your practice. Up. So you cover up. Yeah. And but here in Europe or in in Great Britain where you mm. work, do you, you don't have a culture of covering up. It's more like I always compare it to if there if there's a plane crash, yes. there's total transparency. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that made aviation industry so safe. Yes. Yes. Would you have the same sort of attitude among should, surgeons? No. And in no, hospitals? you don't. We no. all pay lip service to it, but in practice, it's not quite like that. And of course, there's a big difference between plane crashes caused by pilot error and surgical mistakes, the pilot often dies in the process. So you kind of think, well, yes. you know, he didn't, <laughs> you feel sorry for him. I, I used to be rather skeptical about applying airline safety to surgery. 
But I recently read a book about this, a book called Black Box Thinking by an English writer called Matthew Syed. And what I need to discuss is various famous, iconic plane crashes and the potential application of medicine. And what I took away from that was that highly skilled, highly competent, highly intelligent pilots can make terrible mistakes. Yes, because they're human. Because they're human. And the, the really important thing is trying to apply that to medicine. But the problem in medicine is, you know, the blame culture is very intense. There's litig in countries like America and England, there's always litigation against doctors, which is a huge growth industry. And again, patients find it hard to forgive doctors when things go wrong. Some of them do. Some of the most moving moments in my life have been when patients and their families have forgiven me. We will come to back for something later, not like going in well. Ukraine. Tucking. But it's, it's very difficult because it's such an intensely human relationship between the doctor and the patient. The doctor survives, the patient doesn't mm -hmm. or is left very badly damaged. Pipe with aeroplanes is a bit different. But having been rather against using these airplane analogies, I now actually think it's very valid. Henry, give us an idea about your work. You were a neurosurgeon. How can I imagine that? I mean, you, you did open brain surgery while your patients were awake. You saw a lot of tumors. What, what are the challenges? What, what kind of characterizes that? Well, the actual, the, the actual operating in terms of what you do with your hands is not actually significantly different from any other branch of surgery. It doesn't require greater dexterity or <clears throat> no. more complicated manipulation. In fact, some branches of surgery, like eye surgery, are more delicate yes. and done under higher magnification and also, in their own way, very dangerous. What's special about neurosurgery is <clears throat> it's very dangerous because the brain is so fragile and vulnerable. Brain tissue is very soft. It's not like operating on muscle or bone. How is it in its texture? Oh, it's like thick jelly. More All or less, right. or like thick cream cheese, perhaps is like All thick right. cream creamy. Yeah, creamy. Yeah, thick. And it has much more limited powers of healing than other parts of the body. So, in other words, surgery is very can be very damaging. You can't operate on the brain without inflicting a bit of damage on it, and therefore the decision making is terribly important to get the balance right between the risks of surgery and the risks of not operating. You also will have many conditions like severe head injuries or cerebral hemorrhages where you can't undo the damage. You know, you can't actually get the patient back to normal yeah. health again. So most doctors don't want to be surgeons and most surgeons don't want to be neurosurgeons because it has a very sad, depressing aspect to it. Uh, a large number of your patients will be disabled damaged in some way. And this is potentially corrupting because you see so many people who have been diminished. You know, if they've had suffered significant personality change, it gives you a rather sort of warped view of humanity. So you have to, it's a challenge to maintain your kindness and humanity as a neurosurgeon. When you open the brain, I mean, if I understand correctly, is, for example, if you have a tumor surgery, you mm. want to take out as much as possible well, off the tumor. There are different sorts of tumor, but 
an awful lot of what are called brain tumours are actually tumours outside the brain, coming from the nerves or the meninges mm. that line the brain. And true brain tumours are actually in the brain itself. Yes. And there is no clear boundary between the tumour and the brain. And the tumour looks a lot, particularly at the edges, looks like the brain tissue because it is altered brain tissue. So which is why many years ago, I started operating for certain operations with the patient awake. So by using a little electrical probe, you could get early warning if you were starting to stray into a important functioning part of the brain. And that way, it didn't usually mean you could get all of a tumour out because there's no clear edge to a tumour. But you could get more of a tumour out. And on the whole, there's fairly good evidence now that the more tumour you get out, the longer the patient lives. Okay, so you have a trade-off. Get out as much as possible, but, but the more, don't but the more destroy danger. it. Exactly, more danger. How do you navigate? How do you... Are you open the brain? You say it's it's like thick cream cheese. Well, Is there a structure to it? Can you navigate... Only the, the surface, only the surface of the brain. And everybody's wired a little bit differently. But you have a rough idea of which bits of the brain do what and what sort of damage will result when you operate some parts of the brain you cannot operate upon, such as the brain in the brain stem, other parts of the brain like the right frontal lobe or the right temporal lobe, you can actually remove quite a lot of brain tissue and really as far as one can tell, the patient is intact afterwards. Which is surprising again. It's very surprising. So in a way it has some not resilience, but it well, has parts there's where some redundancy there's some redundancy. Yeah. Although on the whole the more carefully you examine the patient with detailed psychological testing and things like that, I think most surgeons underestimate the damage they've done. What would you find, for example? Oh, difficul difficulties in memory or concentration, things which you wouldn't pick up in a normal outpatient yeah. interview after the operation. And patients and their families often don't want to tell the surgeon, actually, I've been left with serious problems. They don't want to upset the surgeon, and also they want to be optimistic and of hope course. things will get better. So the standard neurosurgical outpatient consultation after surgery can easily be an exercise in self-deception, both by the patient and by the surgeon. Henry, are we our brains? Yes. You totally believe yeah. that? Oh, yes. Yeah. I believe that partly for theoretical reasons, but also... If you see, as all neurosurgeons see, many people have suffered damage to the front of their brains where personality, moral behavior, sensitivity to other people seems to be organized. You see people who suffered, you know, can suffer terrible personality change. They often, usually, don't realize it themselves because if I have changed. How can I know I've changed? If nobody tells me. Uh, so it's only, We all know that problem. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, but the family will say, Mr. Marsh, you know, he's, he's not the man I married. And there's a very high rate of marital breakdown, unemployment in people who suffered brain damage of this sort. So if what really... They become more, sorry, they become more antisocial? They yes, become, they become asocial. Bit, it, it's very variable. But they can become disinhibited, you know, in severe cases, they become totally disinhibited, you know, all sort of urinate in the public place sort of thing. But that's just one example. They lose social restraint 
and they sort of lose interest and empathy in other people. So very kind of vague changes in personality, which you can clearly correlate to... to damage to the brain. Damage yeah. to the brain. So therefore, it seems very unlikely to me that when we die, uh, our brains deteriorate and then that's it. You know, there's no afterlife, no human soul, no mind versus matter. And it's, you know, it's one of the profound scientific truths that thought is a physical process. And I try to discuss this in simple terms in my latest book. And the interesting thing about consciousness, which obviously matters a lot to all of us, is we simply don't have the metaphorical language, the analogies in which to explain the relationship between the unconscious self and the conscious self. We think in a sort of Freudian sort of way of the ego on top of the Eden. Yeah, yeah, very simplistic. But it's all a sort of hierarchy, yeah. but it's not. They are The conscious and unconscious self are parts of the same phenomenon, which is me. Yes. And then there's also all this fascinating research showing that the conscious perception of something occurs about half a millisecond or half a second After, After the initial stimulus, yes. we live sort of looking backwards. Our conscious perception is a Which summary. Is a problem for free will as well. Eh? Well, no, it's not. If you if you accept the conscious and unconscious self are part of the same phenomenon, then yeah. the, the free will issue goes away. Yeah, um, it means, on the other hand, of course, that the idea of evil and people deserving to be punished doesn't really have much base. In, in a neuroscientific view of the world. doesn't mean to say you shouldn't lock people up in prison sure. if they're a danger to the public. But it does mean that... Responsibility. That there's still People are still responsible for their actions, and if you behave badly, there is a price to be paid for it. But we also know, you know, if you were bought, if you had a damaged childhood, if you got sort of bad quality DNA combined with a deprived childhood you are much more likely to get in trouble with the law. Mm. Um, and social circumstances, just as they determine our health, they determine our social behavior in later life as well. If you reconnect a little bit with what we talked about before, you have cancer, you surely think about you know, the consequences nearing the end of your life. Where do you find solace then? I find solace in my family and my grandchildren, although I'm horrified by the future that awaits them with climate change um, and all the mass migrations to come. And we, in Europe, we'll have to cross to the other side of the road as millions of people die, probably, mm -hmm. in a few decades' time. Um, but I, I love my granddaughters and grandson and my children visit. They didn't see much of me as a father. I spent the whole time working. I'm very lucky. I have a very good relationship with them now. I've always loved nature, and although the natural world, particularly in England, is being steadily degraded. Um, I'm an amateur gardener, but I love that. I'm always making things. I'm starting to work on writing up the fairy stories I told my granddaughters during the pandemic on FaceTime. I'm still lecturing, um, lecturing mainly medical students, both in England and abroad. So I'm busy. 
And it's everything is in the here and now. You don't have a longing to exist beyond no, death. No, not at all. And it's funny, a very good friend of mine has also got prostate cancer with a similar sort of probable prognosis to mine. And he is so terribly unhappy about it. And he's so desperate to live longer. And I say slightly sarcastically, look, you know, we're all going to die. Getting old is not going to be good. So enjoy it, make the most of the present. And also think how lucky you are. You've had, which I felt very strongly when I was first diagnosed. I have had what I'd call a complete life. I've had a very interesting yes. and exciting life. Uh, I, I, I've made mistakes. I, there are many things I regret, but I really can't complain. <laughs> uh, and it's and you, I, as a doctor, I know when people die, often all sorts of deep resentments in the family or bitterness regrets, comes out. Regrets. Yes. I have none. I mean, I've yes, I, I have professional regrets. I regret the end of my first marriage in a way because I behaved very badly although my first wife was right to end the marriage, and we're both much more happily married again, both of us. And, and I'm good friends with my first wife again, although she's gone a, down a completely different route, sort of philosophically, from me. But we're good friends, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, old age on the whole is bad news. As people always quote the American novelist Philip Roth, saying, you know, it's a massacre. Um and as a doctor, I might be lucky and I keep fit. I still run every day. I'm very lucky my knees haven't been a major problem. But it's a, it's a mistake to cling to life too long. It's a mistake to think, well, and in my more depressed moments, which I haven't been now for a while, I then say to myself, look, Marsh, now, what do you want to do in five years' time? that you can't do now? Well, the answer is there's nothing. You know, It's for my family, for my wife and my children. They want me to live longer, and I <clears throat> want to live longer for them. But for myself, I've been very fortunate. Would you advise a 47-year-old man like me in a midlife crisis, more or less pronounced, to think about old age? Or what would you say? To no, I think at, at, at that, on at that age, get on with things. Keep fit, very important. In the middle age, investing in physical fitness mm. in middle age is important. You know, make sure your blood pressure is okay and run and exercise, things like that. That's important as a, as a longer-term investment. And don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the future. Think about the here and now and what you can achieve. And you're lucky as a journalist and filmmaker. You, you make things. You create things. And that's deeply satisfying. Yeah. But ultimately, there's no, there's no substitute For a close loving family, I'm afraid. That is true. That is <clears> true as well. I want to go back. You had a very classic English education. Yes. You went to private school. You grew up in Oxford. Yes. And then you studied PPE. Yes. Philosophy, politics and economics at Oxford. What did you take over into your life, into your medical life from that sort of education? Because you started off completely different. You started yeah. off with PPE in a sort of more social uh, sciences a, corner. My, my anthropologist wife, often says, you know, she really resents the fact that we call them public schools in England. I went to Westminster, which is one of the best schools in the country. I had a morning service every morning, six days a week in Westminster Abbey. I'm afraid it gave me a sense of superiority mm -hmm. and self-confidence, um, which is not entirely... Why are you afraid about that? It's not a good well, thing. it's not entirely a good thing, you know, if you can be a bit up yourself and a bit arrogant. 
Um, so whether you'd have to ask other people who knew me many years ago whether that was a problem or not. I was always a bit tormented, I don't know, in a sense of self-critical and full of angst. If you, if you believe in cultural stereotypes, which I don't, you might say, it was my German side. It's your German side. You have a German mother. <laughs> yes, you have a German yeah. angst. I can relate to it. And yeah. there may be some truth in that, not genetically, but my mother was a political refugee. She had, she was chased, she had to escape the Gestapo, basically, for having anti-Hitler Nazi, Germany, Nazi yeah. Germany. And she lost everything. She lost, all her family died in the war. Um, her brother, who's a Luftwaffe Messerschmitt pilot, survived, but died from alcoholism years later. Her sister, who was a fanatical Nazi, was killed by the British in an air raid on Jena towards the end of the war. Her mother died from breast cancer during the war. It was a small, very close, loving family. She lost all that. She lost all that was good about Germany. You know, she saw it all destroyed by the Nazis. She created a wonderful new life in England and was a leading member of the people who founded and ran Amnesty International. But she escaped Germany. My father married her basically so she could get out. She was going to have to give evidence on a trial against her two friends, who had actually both went to prison. One of them died from TB as a result. And she wasn't going to be prosecuted by the Nazis herself. But she ran away. And it was only really after she died, I understood she had a deep sense of survivor guilt in many ways. Um, she wrote a very beautiful memoir about her childhood, which we had printed privately. Um, published privately. And I, to my shame, I, well, I'd read it. I didn't, it was only after her death I read it properly and understood. And she was a very devout but very nice Christian, which I'm certainly not. And I remember talking to me about St. Peter betraying Christ. And she also introduced me to the St. Matthew Passion and she had a deep, profound love of Bach. Um, And it was only I put this all together later that I understood this. And perhaps since I was very clear, all, and the youngest of four, we were all close to my mother, whether I was particularly close to her or not, who knows, because my other siblings, all over, all very good people, didn't become doctors or anything like that. But I, I wonder sometimes whether some of this so angst and guilt rubbed off in me in some ways. But how? That's what I wonder. How did your mother transmit that? Can, did you reconstruct? I don't know. This is all speculation on my part. I just don't know. Did you feel it? I mean, was she, did you, because I believe in that as well, that it yeah. is, that certain trend. Carl, the answer is, I, I don't know. Um, but all I know is that in old age, I am talking to my mother every day, as many people do, I think. Yes. But she was a very, very special person. So then, PP. Yeah, your Oxford. Well, it was I kind mean, this of is the classic. Every it seems to me every English or recent English prime minister. Yeah, but you, but, but for your listeners, <laughs> I do need to point out that although I come from the same stable as Johnson and Cameron, I absolutely loathe them. <laughs> They represent for me all that is worst mm -hmm. about the sort of upper class, upper middle class English educational system. There were people at Oxford University I wanted nothing. Mm -hmm. to do with the sort of aristocratic knobs mm. terrible people um no they're, they're not my they're not my type although i come from the same state. 
But the positive, what was the positive? The positive was being taught to write, and I had a very good education, both at school and then at, at, at Oxford you had to write two essays every week, which you then went and discussed with your teacher, your tutor. I never went to any lectures, although you could go to lectures. You never went? No, I went to three in my first term and then decided I didn't like lectures. So I just worked in libraries and wrote essays. But I'd also been sort of taught at Westminster School to write essays. And there's no question of the fact that that's one of the reasons I can write, you know, my books. Exactly, yeah. Been so successful. everything comes full circle. It yeah. gave me a deeper, you know, it gave me an understanding that you can't understand healthcare systems without looking at the bigger picture of finance and social inequalities, things like that. But I left school at 17 and took two years off before I went to Oxford. I spent one year working as a volunteer teacher <clears throat> in a very remote corner of West Africa. Where in which country? Um, Ghana, northern Ghana, on yeah. the border of what is now Burkina Faso. Okay, yeah. Um, in the days, or post-colonial days, when school leavers went out to teach. Yeah. Now it would be graduates, not just. But I loved it. I loved Africa, and Ghana is one of the happier, on the whole, one of the more successful African countries. So I didn't really, I wasn't terribly keen to go to Oxford. Also, I chose to apply to the college in Oxford where my father had been a law professor many years earlier. And I always felt, because it was a sort of the family college, in fact, I got a, a, a scholarship, an open, what's called an open scholarship, but I always felt I'd been a bit timid by sort of, I hadn't really, I should have tried to go to a different college mm. rather than maybe, well, I don't think it did particularly count in my favor, going to a college where my father had been. So I always felt I'd been a bit pathetic. And there was no science in the family at all. I had virtually no science teaching at school because of the insane English A-level system. No, we don't have the abitur or the baccalauréat. Yeah. You specialize from the age of 16 onwards, which is really stupid. So I didn't really, I read about science. And then, for various reasons, I ran away from Oxford after two years. Um, basically, I was doing a sort of young Werther, and I was unhappily in love. And <laughs> oh, yeah, you write about oh, that. I find that an interesting period. Yeah. Yes. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I really ought to. If I'm so unhappy, I ought to go and see real suffering, full of emotion and yeah. tragedy. So I, yeah, melancholy. So I thought, well, I better go and see some That's real possible. tragedy. So I managed to get a job through a weird coincidence working in, as a, in a hospital operating theatre. You did a PPE. You, yes. That was your first education. You studied politics, philosophy, and economics, right? Yes. And then you said you were a little Werther, Goethe's Werther. Yeah, I What, felt... Tell I felt, me about your Werther years. I, I was very... Totally inexperienced. I'd never had a girlfriend. I was very shy. Partly because my parents were very old-fashioned and <clears throat> prudish is the English word. Um, and I fell madly in love with an older woman who was a sort of family friend. It was terribly embarrassing. I think my family were hideously embarrassed. But I couldn't sort of handle it. And I wanted to kill myself and didn't, um, fortunately. Um, and I said, I, ca I can't go on. So I ran away from Oxford, much to the distress of my, particularly my father. Part of me also felt it was a sort of rebellion against my family as well. And this was 1968, 69, you know, the 
era of revolutionary student politics. But I also felt, I, I know I've had this very privileged upbringing. I took the easy choice by going to the college I chose in Oxford. I ought to see some real life and real suffering. And by a extraordinary coincidence, the father of a friend of mine was a surgeon in a very impoverished mining town in northeast England. And he said, well, you can come and work in the hospital as a porter in the operating theatres as a general you know, handyman and carry, lifting the patients on and off the table, helping the anaesthetists. So I spent six months there, very lonely, writing very bad second-rate poetry. Can you I, recite some of that poetry? No, no. Forgot about it. No, forgotten it all. Um, but during that time, I decided I did want a respectable middle-class career, <laughs> but sort of one of my own choosing, and also I found surgery very interesting and very exciting. And I also thought, well, I won't, it's unlikely I'll get into medical school if I abandon my first degree. Mm. And then very, very kindly, my Oxford college said, well, you can come back. So after a year, I went back. I worked madly hard because I now had a real purpose in life. I got a very, very good top, top degree. And basically on the basis of that was accepted into the only medical school in London, which would take people on without science A-level. And I had to do a sort of crash course, an extra year of basic science, which I loved. You know, I'd never been taught about the periodic table of the elements. And I thought that was so interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and the Krebs cycle uh, and photosynthesis. I thought it was all really fascinating. So I really enjoyed that. And then it was five years of medical school, fairly boring, just lo learning lots and lots of facts. But I, I liked it on the whole. But I, when I became a young doctor, I, I didn't know really, I didn't find medicine very interesting. And general surgery, which is also in those days, big incisions and body fluids and urine and feces. I didn't like that. And then more or less by chance, although this was a year after my baby son was treated for a brain tumour successfully, that was terrible at the time, I saw a neurosurgical operation, which I'd never seen as a student. And it was an operation on aneurysm, which is done under a microscope. It's very fiddly. It's pretty, pretty very delicate. Aneurysms surgery. are bulges in blood They're vessels. They're blowouts, blowouts in blood vessels. Mm. And it's very dangerous for the patient. It's a bit like bomb disposal work, because any moment the aneurysm might burst. Mm. And that usually means <clears throat> the patient dies or is left with a stroke. And I knew at once that's all I'd ever wanted to be all my life, without realizing it. Why? What was it? Drama, important, excitement, very delicate handwork, everything together. It was just irresistible. Sure, it was you know, the right thing at the right time. And also the surgeon I was watching became my sort of patron and, and mentor. And I worked for him for some years. I don't share his political views, which are completely atrocious. But he was, a, in his own way, a good teacher. Not a terribly good surgeon, but a very sensible in his decision-making and really quite an intellectual for, for a doctor. And from then on, I never looked back. I was an old man in a hurry. I remember coming home, more or less having seen this operation, which again was by chance, 
I was doing something else. And I told my first wife, I'm going to be a brain surgeon. And, you know, family and friends, I think, all sort of rolled their eyes and said, yeah, Henry, typical, yes, brain surgeon. It, it, it figures, you know. Was it glamorous already back then? Yes. Yes, it was. And it was challenging and difficult and dangerous. And it required total commitment. And I've always been into sort of total commitment. Apart from making the decision when to operate and when not yeah. to operate, what are the qualities a good brain surgeon needs to have? You said delicate work. Well, you've got to be good with your hands. I mean, there are so many aspects to being a good surgeon. Nobody has them all. I think the, the really important things is, is, is patience and not losing your cool. You know, steady hands. But it's, it's not just patience when operating, but you know, patience outside the operating theater as well and not making decisions in a hurry, things like that. Mm. And being a bit anxious all the time. I like my neurosurgeons and my, I trained many, many neurosurgeons and many Americans who came to work in, in my department. I learned very quickly the trainees I had to worry about were the ones who weren't anxious, you know, who weren't worrying. In effect, who didn't know their own limitations. They were the dangerous ones. So the anxiousness mm. kind of focuses you. Yes, and it means you take care and you don't get over self-confident. And like many surgeons, once they become what we call in England consultants or you know, senior specialists, I went through a phase of becoming overconfident. I was very, very busy. I had a huge practice so unimaginably large by modern sta contemporary standards. And I became a little bit overconfident. I made some mistakes because I was taking on more things, taking on too big a challenge mm. without really being up to it. So I learned some painful lessons and got better at I also learned at an early stage something I'm always recommending in my lectures to doctors and medical students nowadays is if you have a very difficult operation, which is going to take many, many hours, and many operations in brain surgery are like that, do it with a colleague. Do it together, mm. pilot and co-pilot. But it's, it's complete equals. So it has been experienced surgeon. And that takes a lot of the stress out of it, and you get less tired, and you become a better surgeon for operating with somebody else. Tell me about your typical patients. Um, in your books, you describe many cases... What I found interesting is that you get a lot of ca cancer patients and then you may get a, an MRI or a scan of their brains and then you see that it's a tumor and you can tell quite quickly whether it's a malignant tumor or it's, an, uh, Usually. it's a benign yes. tumor, which of course has huge, huge implications for, for, the, for the patient. What, what in, you, you've treated hundreds, probably thousands of patients. Yeah, thousands. Uh, which patients come to your mind if oh all the failures <laughs> and i'm not unusual that's not me being exceptionally self-critical all the senior surgeons i know they all say i remember the bad results not the successes the successes you've done your job you move on mm. but the failures accumulate in your inner cemetery and the cemetery is always there it hasn't left me i've now been retired from clinical work in this country for five years My last operation, in fact, was in Kathmandu just before the pandemic. And I don't expect, I'll, I hope to go back there later this year, but I don't, I'm not planning on operating. And, you know, every, 
never a day passes without my remembering a patient or two, and usually with sadness. You say you remember your failures. Tell me, yes. tell me a concrete ca case. Is there one you... I've had so many, I wouldn't know where to start. Um, <clears throat> there are cases where I made, I mean, there are cases where I made a f mistake with a... One of the biggest problems is when you have problems after an operation, when your inbuilt optimism bias. You, I, I, would, I had two or three cases where I was too slow to diagnose that a serious infection had occurred after an operation. Because it's very unusual with brain surgery to get serious infections, but they happen. And I can think of certainly two patients who suffered serious harm. Both patients I told to sue me, in fact, because I was, I, I was too late in realizing a serious infection. You told them to sue you? Yes. Yeah. Mm. You told them, yeah. go to court, sue Yes, yeah. because I'd done them harm and they'd lost a lot of money and suffering as a mm. result. Not easy. And there are other cases where I probably was a bit less than honest. But, you know, the fact of the matter is our duty is to the patient, not to our malpractice insurance company. Yes. Um, and you write about that in the book yes. that you went to Old Bailey? No. Well, no, it was a lawyer's office. Lawyer, yes. Lawyer's office. Yes. And, yeah. and do you get a lot of, uh, are the relatives of the patients, do you get a lot of anger or are you surprised that people are understanding because they know you tried your best? On, on the whole, if you've been, and it's very important if you do dangerous surgery to be absolutely honest before the operation. I, when I lecture, I say the management of what we call complications. Mm in surgery, which means things going badly, starts. It starts the moment you first meet the patient and the family. Somehow you have to establish trust and at the same time be honest about the risks. And that's very difficult to both give hope and break bad news at the same time. But I find, there's no question of the fact, that if you've always been honest, and above all, if you show that you do actually care for the patient, No, not when you burst into floods of tears that go badly, but you show you do care for them. It's amazing what you'll be forgiven for. Uh, I, I've, I live near my hospital. I, I haven't moved, so it's, it's five minutes away by bicycle. And I would go in every night before the operation. I'd go in to see the patient just to cheer them up, say, hi, hello, you know, we're gonna, things will go well tomorrow. And I go in the night after the operation mm. to tell them how things had gone, and that's quite a you know that's quite demanding. And if I lived far away from the hospital, as most of my colleagues did, you can't really do it. But things like that, showing you're committed, that your patient is more important to you than having a free Sunday evening. I hated going in on Sunday evening; it ruined all of Sunday. Asked my yeah. wife, you know, she said, "You just got." in a thoroughly bad mood. But once I'd been in and kind of changed gear and I was back in surgical mode, I was then relaxed and happy. It's this problem of going from your private life to your surgical life. And I never really escaped it. In effect, I was on call seven days a week. But it seemed to me that that is how you should behave if you're going to have other people's lives at your mercy, so to speak. Good part of your job is also 
bringing bad news, mm. explaining bad news to patients. In your 2007 documentary, The English Surgeon, there's a scene I will never forget. There's a young patient coming in, a 22-year-old patient, again with an MRI scan or whatever scan it was, but you could tell immediately that it was a not benign tumor, a malignant tumor. Inoperable. Inoperable. Yeah. So this 20-year-old girl, young lady, who was perfectly seemed perfectly fine, but you already knew that she has at best a few years left to live. Months. Months. What goes on in your mind when you... In that case, pure horror. Because initially, because she was very beautiful and beautifully turned out, and she showed me this scan, and I assumed, like so many of the people I saw in doing clinics in Ukraine. This is a scan of some relative. And I looked at it and it showed this terrible tumor called a glioblastoma, um, glio uh, multi, not my, what's the name? Gliomatosis, that's right, that's the word I'm looking for. It showed gliomatosis, where the whole brain has been infiltrated by a malignant tumor. And often the patients are reasonably well to begin with, but they get bad headaches and they start to go blind. Uh, and then she said, no, no, that's my scan. And she had no idea what it showed. Uh, and it was, it was a terrible, terrible moment. And I don't speak Ukrainian, so I sort of left it to my colleague to talk to her and the family later. Uh, and I don't know what happened. But I saw her on my next visit months later, and she was completely blind, unrecognizable. And the family had a furious argument with my colleague, all in Ukrainian. And my colleague wouldn't tell me what had been discussed. And it was just horrible. What amazes me that in these instances, the doctors are always almost brutally honest. My instinct would be to kind of almost falsely give hope. but No, um... It's, there are ways of doing it. I mean, it depends on the situation. You can say there is a 5% chance you will die because of the operation. Or you can say, well, look, there's a small chance, maybe 5%, things could go badly. You might even die. But what's important is for you to understand that this is still safer and better than not operating. And that you're giving the same information with a totally different emotional, frame it different. emotional packaging. Yes. And the problem is you you don't get taught how to do this. Patients never tell you whether you spoke well to them or not. <laughs> I was taken out to dinner last week by a former patient of mine, nice guy, who he wanted to have the 10th anniversary of uh, actually a very successful operation on a very difficult brain tumor called a pineoloma. And he wanted to take me out to dinner and celebrate the fact that it had all gone so well. And he sort of said he remembered everything I'd said to him at the time. And I kept on sort of nudging him, trying to get him to say that I'd been so kind and caring and compassionate. But no, <laughs> by the sounds of it, although the operation had gone very well, I'd been fairly matter-of-fact and detached. <laughs> so this is an example of how most doctors think they're much nicer than they really are. You know? You're in the interesting position that you are a patient yourself yes. now. Um, mm. When you got your diagnosis of prostate cancer, yeah. 
how was it delivered to you? And well, what it, were you thinking? Well, it was over the telephone by a colleague of mine who's quite a good friend, who and I came as a complete surprise. Said, "Your PSA is 130, <laughs> and I better refer you to an oncologist." And that more or less was it. I then went on Google, and so you did all the mistakes you would tell your patients not to go on Google. And yeah, well, I had to really, um, and I then did. I then told myself. But I had a terrible prognosis. I, I, so I broke the bad news to myself. Um, so by the time I then saw an oncologist uh, a week later, you know, I already knew the broad outlines of what awaited me. It was also the pandemic. We were both wearing face masks. I was also actually very anxious not to sort of throw my weight around and say, look, I'm a famous surgeon and writer and so I went to the other extreme of not really asking questions at all and I suspect he was a bit frightened of me and I wouldn't like to have myself as a patient. But you kept a low profile. I kept a low profile. And then you explored the whole NHS system as not as a doctor but as a patient. Yes but I was I mean but but I went to a very uh, one of the best cancer hospitals in Europe I'd actually been the neurosurgeon there. I'd actually done all the neurosurgery for many years for that hospital. And cancer, this was during the pandemic, cancer treatment went on mm. despite the pandemic. And if you go to one of the famous London hospitals, you will get world-class, world-beating treatment entirely free of charge. So although I didn't enjoy being a patient and the basically there's a disempowerment and demeaning way one's a patient um i i got the best possible treatment and i have no complaints to make but still your latest book is a good deal about that experience you went from being a doctor yes and funnily enough in your earlier books of course years before you knew that eventually you would become a patient mm. you were writing that there are There are doctors and there are patients. There are two different races. A doctor yes. will never be a patient. Yeah, yes. This will yes. never happen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, I, I had that delusion. I was genuinely shocked when I had cancer myself. This shouldn't happen. I'm a doctor. <laughs> and then how did you experience the whole, this month of, you know, treatment, going to the hospital? It was fine. I bicycled in every day, had the radiotherapy. I mean, it got a bit difficult because you get bowel and bladder side effects, uh, which were not were just embarrassing and a nuisance, but nothing worse than that. No, the, the problem, I, in retrospect, was after a year, a year and a half of the hormone therapy, I was getting quite depressed and tired. And I think that was a direct physiological consequence rather than a psychological one. Although at the end of the day, everything psychological is physical, mm, you know. Exactly. So, would you now think you would have been a better doctor if you have made that experiences before? Or did you know? Did you I knew it? quite a lot of this in principle because of my son's brain tumor. Because I'd worked as a nurse, I'd worked as a theater porter, because my second wife, Kate, has Crohn's disease and is often in hospital and as an anthropologist, as a trained observer of human behavior. But at the end of the day, I cannot judge. I know I tried to be a good colleague. Occasionally, I lost my temper. I was always very ashamed afterwards and always apologized afterwards because uh, I came to realize 
Of course, if you lose your temper, it means you're frightened. You know, it's a sign. Mm. It's a sign of weakness. So I tried to be a good colleague, both with doctors and nurses and trainees. But ultimately, I'd say you'd have to ask them whether I succeeded or not. And certainly, I sometimes failed. But on the whole, when I went into it as a young doctor, I was a very ambitious individualist. And I certainly left the profession a passionate believer in, for want of a better word, team working. And being a good... I didn't like the word team working. It's got hijacked to mean boring, yes. managerial but being a good crap. colleague. But being a good colleague. Being a good colleague is incredibly important. Henry, Ukraine. Mm. How did you get to Ukraine? Now well, everybody's talking about it. You've been there for a long time yeah. already. When I was doing politics, philosophy, and economics at Oxford, I was I was always very interested in totalitarian politics. I think because of my German mother and the fact she was a refugee. And in my when I was a teenager, I read obsessively about the concentration camps. It's almost a sort of intellectual pornography. You know, I know an awful lot about the concentration camps. Now I can't bear reading anything about human cruelty. I just find too upsetting. Um, it's funny, I was listening to a program on the BBC radio recently about about the camps. And they, the people talking, you know, they clearly didn't know very much about them. And I thought, well, I knew, knew all this, you know. I mean, it's... Anyway, it's a whole universe. It's a whole universe. I really read all the memoirs I could find. And I didn't know what... And it's I, a dark universe. Exactly. And the camps were a Russian reality as well. Oh, very much so. And I was deeply read in the Sorry. Gulag as well. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not quite sure why, but it's, it's maybe a dark side of my personality. I recognize that, you know, I could have been a concentration camp guard myself. In a different, I believe very much so that, that good, normal people can do bad things in bad circumstances. I don't believe very much. Yes, 5% of the population are genuine psychopaths and lack empathy. And that's probably biologically determined. But I think if there's any message from the concentration camps is that how many people behave badly. I mean, they behave well in the better environment. You know, we are so influenced by our surroundings. I, I have, as a German, I reflected a lot on it and I find it difficult to make any statements at all about, I have to frame it differently, I do not know how I would have behaved. None of us know is the answer. But I'm afraid my view is probably, depending on your, you might well have behaved badly. That was what was so exceptional about my mother. You know, she refused to join the Bund Deutsches Mädel. Her sister was a fanatical Nazi. She just knew from the start they were wrong. She had this inner compass. This inner compass. Which very few people have. I know. And if yeah. we go, if we look at Russia today, we kind of implicitly expect that the whole of Russia is standing up against Putin. But it's not. No, exactly. And I, I mean, it's difficult. I have these arguments. I've stopped having them with my Ukrainian friends who really take the view the only good Russian is a dead Russian. Yes, unfortunately, yeah. And it became very, yeah. yeah. But it'd be like saying because of Hitler, you'll no longer listen to Beethoven, you know. I mean, it's yes, it, it's a sort of category, error, yeah. as philosophers call it. So anyway, I had deep, slightly obsessive interest in... In, in Eastern Europe. In Eastern Soviet Europe Wars. and human cruelty. Uh, and so when I was at Oxford, I did a special, I did a special paper. I spent a term studying Soviet politics mm. under a, we became a very eminent Kremlinologist called Archie Brown, who actually 
introduced Gorbachev to Margaret Thatcher. So oh. this is a man, the up, up, up and coming um, leader. And then I did medicine. And then purely by chance, in 1992, after I'd been a senior doctor in England for only five years, an English businessman who was, spoke Russian, he'd done Russian at university, had been, it was a trader, and he was hoping to sell medical equipment in Ukraine. A bit optimistic, given the state of the economy. Um, he ended up, I think, driving Land Rovers to Donetsk and selling Land Rovers to the budding oligarchs. Um, and he, there was a famous neurosurgical hospital in Kiev called the Neurosurgical Research Institute. And he thought if he took an English neurosurgeon to give some lectures, would create goodwill. And his uncle was a local paediatrician near my hospital, didn't know me personally, but he said, if you're looking for a neurosurgeon, you ought to ring up this hospital, which is a very famous hospital called Atkinson Morley's. In fact, CT brain scanning was invented there mm -hmm. by the Nobel Prize winning English physicist, um, engineer Godfrey Hansfield. And he rang up the switchboard, and this is the days when he actually had a switchboard operator and, you know, plugs on cables. And he said, I'm looking for a neurosurgeon, or sorry, I'm looking for a neurosurgeon to come to Ukraine next week. And Connie, who is the lovely switchboard operator, um, this hospital no longer exists. It was closed down and rationalized 20 years ago. So, oh, well, you better talk to Mr. Marsh's secretary. She knows everything. So he spoke to my secretary, and my secretary put her head round the door to my office and said, do you want to go to Ukraine next week? And I said, no, I'm far too busy. You know, I've got an outpatient clinic. And my secretary said, oh, come on, Henry, you're always saying how interested you are in Russia. You know, you ought to go. So I thought, well, if my secretary says I ought to go, I should go. So I went, flew to Moscow in, in late winter. 1992, that 92. Was. I mean, yeah. Russia then was weird. You know, all these people out on the streets. Just had collapsed for one yeah, year. Selling their yeah. possessions. You know, the hotels just swarming and all these beautiful young girls who were trying mm. to work as hookers. And then we took the overnight train from Moscow to Kiev. I was a very, I can remember every minute of this trip. It was so intense. And I was absolutely horrified by the conditions I found in Ukrainian hospitals. And also the sort of, the way the neurosurgeons I met all, on the one hand, were saying, we're the equal of the West. This is the, Europe's biggest neurosurgical hospital. But I could see the cupboard was totally empty. And they're all coming up to me and so whispering more or less, you know, I'd be very grateful if it arrange my son to come and study with you <laughs> in Was London. it just a lack of, of, of supplies? No, no. Or also a lack no, no. of skills? Oh, yeah. Well, not lack of skills, but they were 50 years out of date. They didn't have brain mm. scanners, you know? Um, so it was 50 years behind the times compared to Western Europe, and the economy had collapsed in yes. the wake of the massive economic disorganization of the end of the Soviet Union. And I was not willing to sort of bring out the sons of professors. <laughs> but I met this very dynamic, energetic um, young neurosurgeon called Igor, who said, everything is terrible here. Will you help? And I said, yeah, all right, if you can come out to London. So he, he managed to get the permission of the senior neurosurgeon in Ukraine. And he spent three months with me. This is in the days when the National Health Service in England was a much more relaxed and generous place. I'd have said to the there was one hospital manager, and I was a whole army of them. Mm. I said to the manager, I'm bringing this Ukrainian guy out to work with me. Fine, no problem. So he could scrub up and operate and work with me. All informal, perfectly safe, because I was in charge. 
So he was. He did a kind of internship. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Now it'd be almost impossible. All the paperwork. Of and course. Everything else. Very sad. We live in a less generous world. Um, and then I said to him after three months, and he went back, and I said, "Well, look, you know, I, I'm willing to come out to Ukraine once or twice a year to help you, and bring out secondhand medical equipment." When I first met him, his operator, he was basically a spinal neurosurgeon, um, didn't do brains. Uh, and his operating instrument was a little fish tank measuring about sort of 50 by 20 centimeters with a few old instruments sterilized in formaldehyde. And he was doing lots of really bad, wrong, stupid operations. He had this Bosch power drill. Well, that was later. That was later. Second-handed. Anyway, after 20 years of working together, he had a br all the brand new equipment. He had rented space in what, in effect, was the KGB, the SBU hospital. Um, and he was enormously successful on the basis of his incredibly hard work, lots of professional problems, jealousies, rivalries, and my assistance. So it, superficially, it seemed like a hugely successful story. That ended, sadly, as we can discuss later. But the point is, because I was well-read in Soviet Eastern European politics, I just and Eastern European history, I just understood immediately that Ukraine was an incredibly important country. It was just obvious. This was a young country trying to escape a terrible past. And my God, the Ukrainian past is terrible. It's why they're so incredibly tough mm. with the war. You know, the history of Ukraine is written in blood. And I just knew that. Ukraine's important. I'm just sad that as my colleague became more and more successful, he sort of reverted to being a, the very sort of dictatorial, jealous, selfish Soviet professor I thought I'd been helping him rebel against in the first place. Yeah, that's the sad ending of the uh, story. And after, after 20 years, I mm. said I can no longer work with you. But nevertheless, you had some, and also in this documentary, you, you had some extraordinary stories and I think experience oh, yeah. you made there. Yeah. Can you can you tell me Tanya's story? Tanya and Katya, I think the mother is called Katya. It's a very sad story, um, but a very moving one. I after been working there for a few years, a mother brought her eleven year old girl to see me. She had a huge benign brain tumor. Benign. Benign, which had been deemed inoperable in, in Ukraine. In, in and in Moscow at the Bordienko which was the main neurosurgical hospital in Moscow, where I had actually worked myself for a while, done some demonstration operations in the mid-1990s. And I thought, you know, this is a real challenge, really exciting. But if we can operate on this child successfully, that would be very good for, you know, publicity in Ukraine. Yeah, for, motivation for the doctors. Yeah, yeah. And, yes. and so, and again, this was a long time ago, the NHS... Management were very didn't complain, so I brought her to London. I did the operation, two operations jointly with a colleague of mine. Both operations took 12 hours. She lost vast amounts of blood. And after the second operation, she suffered a major stroke because of the operation. So she then was stuck. Because, if I can interrupt, because you made a mistake? Or no, because... because the... yeah, in the, the tumour bled like a stuck pig as we say in English, and in the process of 
detaching the tumour from the surrounding blood vessels, you must have damaged a blood vessel. Without knowing it, you can't see, you know. It's very so it was a it was a known complication. Oh yes, it's what yeah yes, it's a, it's, called a, it's a high risk surgery because yes. there's a high risk of causing a stroke, and that's what happened. But the problem was he was then stuck in England for six months, much of the time in the intensive care unit, which is kind of embarrassing because you know it was using up a lot of valuable NHS resources because all this was being done for free. But eventually, and Katya, her mother, spoke no English. The girl was terribly disabled. She'd been a bit disabled before surgery. She was massively disabled after surgery. But eventually we were able to get her home to Ukraine. And eventually she got back to home in a town called Horodok in the west of Ukraine. And then she died. Um, almost said she had a, had, had to put a, what's called a shunt in, a, a drainage device in her head. And almost certainly blocked and there was no proper available treatment and, and she died. So if it one puts one brutally, she was left worse because of oh, the yes, operation? Oh yes, much worse. She was recovering a bit, but it was a basically, I mean, she was going to die without surgery, but all I did was bring it forward. So she had a choice between a rock and a hard place? In a sense, yes. But I shouldn't have done it because it was overambitious. Um, the fact the operation went badly was something I accept. That's the nature of neurosurgery, so I don't feel bad about that. But I think the decision to bring her to England was a mistake. Could you have known at the, at the time? Yes. Yes. But I thought the risk was acceptable. You know, I knew it was high risk. One of the difficult things about working in impoverished countries is you have to be a bad Samaritan. You have to learn that you can't save everybody. And it's better to do many small things than run the risk of blowing it all up with one big thing, you know. And anyway, the real purpose of working in countries like Ukraine in the past is to get is to train the doctors, to get the, to help the doctors become better doctors, rather than do big, clever operations yourself, which is to a certain extent a vanity vanity exercise. But you are again very harsh to yourself because what I found extremely moving is Katya's reactions. So Tanya's mother reaction when you visited her i don't know months or years, years after later. the death yeah. of her daughter mm -hmm. and there was no sense of no. she being angry no, 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 or no, anything no she, i i tried you know and you get you know patients and their families love you if you tried and if you cared and if you tried and they forgive you but usually if things go badly She more than forgave you, I think. She, yeah, you, you, yeah, yeah. you were a very important... Yes, yes, yeah. Because, you know, as a doctor, in principle, you're in this very privileged position. You, you're trying to help people. You know, you're setting an example of, you know, of trying to help, trying to be good. And it's a sort of moral luxury. You know, it's easy as a doctor. <laughs> Just doing your work, you're going to help people. And it's easy to be a bit corrupted by that and become pleased for yourself. But you say I'm so critical, but for me, I'm a craftsman. I make one. I'm an amateur woodworker, but reasonably good one. We just were in your shed outside. I mean, now, now that I'm no longer working, I've got time to do things properly. When I was doing all this woodwork at night, when I was working full time as a surgeon, I was in too much of a hurry and cutting corners. I, I didn't hurry with operating. But I did hurry with woodwork. Now I can take time 
to make things properly. Um, but all I see when I make things, all I see is I see the faults. I see all the things that are wrong with them. Other people say, gosh, that's really beautiful. I, I've made, I spent two years making a doll's house for my third granddaughter, which people are very impressed by. I am a bit, but I see all the faults. But the point is, when I see a fault, I think I'll do better next time. So it's you know, constructive. It's, it's a creative, mm -hmm. self, good self-criticism is a creative process. And it's very important for doctors to you know, be self-critical, but not lose their self-belief and self-confidence at the same time. What do you think is your legacy in Ukraine? I've been to Ukraine myself and I filmed in hospitals and everybody knows you there. Mm. Everybody knows Henry Marsh, whether you go mm. to Lviv or in Kiev and uh, you you did leave a legacy. I mean, with your critical thinking, what do you think? The, you legacy, the legacy is not medical. Uh, any medical progress I help people make would have happened anyway. The legacy was I was a Western European and I cared for Ukraine And I felt Ukraine mattered and had a future. It's a difficult future. It's still terribly corrupt. Um, but I cared for them. I loved the country. It's a crazy country. Going there was terrible. I mean, it really, I do these sort of 12-hour outpatient clinics, seeing one hopeless, tragic case after another. It was particularly children with an opera range. It was agony. But then also <laughs> in a very matter-of-fact way. People deal with it in a very well, matter-of-fact they, way. They, they have to. They have to. Um, but I think the legacy was Ukraine's important. You see, historically, Ukraine had been underdogs. They were underdogs to the Russians, underdogs to the Poles, underdogs to the Austrians. And now, thanks to that ghastly man Putin, they've suddenly found their voice. They've become a united nation, and they're no longer underdogs. They're heroes. And it's bizarre, almost, how much more positive and self-confident my Ukrainian friends have all become. Sure, they're suffering. It's a nightmare. God knows what will happen. But the country has suddenly burst on the world. And I am understandably rather proud of the fact I got there first 30 years ago. Were you still surprised on the 24th of February last yes. year? Yes. How did you experience it? My, my close friend, Andri, rang me up at five in the morning saying, it's war. He heard the he lives in Kiev and he heard the bombs. Were you shocked? Yeah, were you deeply shocked? Because I assumed, because it's what all the Western experts were saying, with a few exceptions, that the Russians would roll over Ukraine, just like that, because um, that's what everybody said would happen. But it, of course, it didn't. And despite your cancer, you went back. Oh yes. Uh, the problem is, I, I I I'm terribly keen to go back, but last time there was, sort of, I arrived at the. Kiev railway station at exactly the same time as a few cruise missiles, um, which I, being under, it was the first time I'd been under fire, and to my surprise, I wasn't frightened. I thought, you live very intensely mm. when you're under fire. Maybe you were when you were... Yeah, I had the, the same... The, yeah. This Actually, I had the same instance when I arrived in Kiev from Saporizhia in summer, a rocket hit, yeah. and I hear the boom. Yeah, exactly. Like, a, like a, yeah. an echo boom. Yes. But then... Well, I guess I'm the same as you are. I am a very rational calculator of yeah. risk. Yes. Yeah. And I drive with my car from Berlin all the way through Poland to yeah. Lviv. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the risk that I have a car accident because I'm tired. Yeah. And if I drive in Ukraine, yes. is yeah. is much higher. Yeah. yeah I always yeah. say that. Yeah. yeah. But it's also there's something a bit abstract about bombs. Very abstract. You know, if I 
run over there, the bomb might land over there. Yes. I was talking to an American journalist yesterday who was in Lviv when I was there. And the day the Russians attacked, he'd actually ended up in hospital with a fractured hip. Yeah. And he was he was telling me yesterday, he was up on the seventh floor of his hospital, entirely on his own. The hospital staff couldn't get him down to the bomb shelter. Um, and they'd all left. And he was entirely on his own. And he could hear the bombs going off in Lviv. He said that was actually very frightening. Mm, he'd, yes. he'd been out in Iraq, been embedded yes. in the American army in Iraq and Afghanistan. He said, I've been under fire before and you know, it wasn't too bad. But being all on your own, unable to get out of bed with a fractured hip, it, nobody it, it, there. He said that actually was very You don't have options anymore. Exactly, yeah, exactly. yeah, you don't he have said options. That, that was, and I'm sure I'd be terrified as well in those circumstances. But you would still go back. You would say, oh, I I'll go I back. Carl, I can't wait to go back. I can go back at the drop of a hat. All my friends would welcome me. But it would inflict so much anxiety on my wife, even though I think, you know, she's wrong to think there's a high risk. I feel unable to inflict that on her at the moment. If going back there would make a huge difference to the situation in Ukraine, I would insist and say, Kate, I'm sorry, I have to go. But I can't say that, you know. I know... Going back would be very well liked by my Ukrainian colleagues. As you say, I'm well known in Ukraine. But at the moment, I feel unable to inflict that on my wife. Also, there's an element I'm awaiting my next cancer test. And there's mm. a sort of slight feeling of being in limbo. And even if it would be very nice if the cancer test was good, I still then will have to have another one in six months' time. So it's only a sort of temporary reprieve but I, i'd be very happy with that i'd be very happy to have another six months of hormone therapy uh, and i'd live very satisfactorily but we'll see I, i don't know if that will happen or not you seem to be you have arrived in the present right yes and uh, it's been a hard slog <laughs> to arrive in the present yes, yes. a lot of suffering en route <laughs> but it's a good state of mind it's wonderful Is well, I finally reached the slightly, even if it's only temporary, even if tomorrow I'm cast into the slough of despond, if you've read that famous Pilgrim's Progress book, uh, today I'm happy, today I'm well, and that's okay. And that's not some sort of corny, superficial self-help no, I mean, thing. This is the truth with all the world religions tell you in a I way know. that happiness yeah, yeah. is living in the present. But I think you can only achieve that towards the end of your life. You know, consider ye the birds in the field, they neither sow not nor they reap, you know, the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. But when you're striving, when you're bringing up a family, when you're working, you can't have that sort it of... It wouldn't be a good thing. You can't be a bad thing. It's only towards the end of your life. And that is why I, I regard these... American billionaires investing all this money in research to prevent aging and live longer. I regard that with a certain contempt. Because it's not something we should strive for. Because it's not something we should strive for. We don't want to clutter the world up with old people. We've fucked up the future with climate change anyway for our children and grandchildren. And it's us sort of vulgar to want to live forever. You said you wrote that interesting thought that physics knows that concept of block time. Yes. Block time is, there is no past, present or future. Yeah. It's all merged into one. And you experience that now. 
Well, that photograph there is in my book. Ahead of me, this one, the black and white. The left is my mother, mm -hmm. Zabina, her sister, who became an enthusiastic Nazi in the middle. It's a black and white picture, two girls, and on the right, a younger boy. A and the boy is Hans Markwart, who became a Luftwaffe. He was in the Schlagader 26, one of mm -hmm. the crack, crack Messerschmitt squadrons. That was photographed in Magdeburg, where they grew up in 1928. The Nazis are on the rise. The family had lost. Her, their father was a schoolteacher. They'd lost their modest savings and the hyperinflation. But it was a very, very happy childhood. My rather, mother wrote a beautiful memoir about it. How could they know in 1928 what the future would hold? What the future would hold. Just 10, 12 years away. My mother, a dissident, escaping to England. Zabina dies in 1945 in an air raid. Hans Markwart is shot down over Kent in England in 1940. Survives, but his life is ruined. And he dies of alcoholism. Sort of because thing. of that well, event. That I think experience. so. My mother felt yeah. He was a very nice man. I knew yeah, him yeah. as an uncle, Superman. Yes. And I then think of my children, my granddaughters. You know, We don't know the future. And on the one hand... The situation I'm in now, approaching the end of my life, which might be a year away or five years away. I may or may not have nasty chemotherapy. I just don't know. But what I know is, by my age, on the whole, it's going downhill. Mm. And I'm horrified by the thought of becoming demented, and as happened to my father. Um, and I'm living in the present, and the future's not very important for me. Um, but for my children and my granddaughters, I'm filled with But also, we always fear. imagine the future different than it actually does happen. Yes, but I think when you look at the graphs on rising global temperatures... <laughs> yes, you're very worried about that. <laughs> yes, for, for, on behalf of my family, yes, not for myself. And you don't think that we as humans will somehow adapt... To it, we we will adapt, but at huge suffering. At huge cost. At huge cost. Yes. That's the problem. Yes. I don't care a hoot if the human race comes to an end. I don't have this lunatic belief we ought to be firing space rockets and terraforming Mars, which is all nonsense anyway. Mm. It's just a fantasy. Um, but I do worry intensely about how much suffering there will be and how much evil will be unleashed on the world as... Humanity fights and struggles for what natural resources are left, with much of the world having turned into a desert. Henry, you wrote, I can't not give the exact quote, but the brain is in a way as much as a mystery as the stars yes. in the night sky. Yeah. If I sometimes look at the stars in the night sky, and if I read about astronomy and this vastness of space and time and, and also mm. if you think about black holes and what exists and, 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 and how incomprehensible and crazy yeah. everything is. Yes. Where is our place there? Where is our place in our brains? Our brains indeed, and I say that as a biologist, the product of evolution that kind of was primed by us being social species and Well, I think Or is there more to it? Well, I think that's the best working hypothesis we have. But what is so interesting for me, trying to find some consolation in this line of thought, 
is, yes, I think our brains must obey the laws of physics. But our understanding of physics has absolutely nothing to say about consciousness and nothing. sentience. Exactly. Nothing. nothing. How, you know, there's even a suggestion that insects might have feelings, might feel pain. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's very yeah. reasonable. I, yeah. I, I'm a sort of part-time vegetarian and vegan, not totally strict. I, I believe in flexibility, but I try to minimize my, my impact on living creatures. And I find that consoling in a way. There's, there's really so little we understand. But also, you know, love of living creatures. I mean, we have what's like, special about us as human beings is the way is the way we can at our best care for everything that's living. Okay. You know, I don't like Yes, exactly. I don't like coronaviruses. Yeah. And whether viruses yeah. are fine, I, I don't like you know, meninges coccus that causes meningitis. But this, this love of life of all living creatures is you know, hugely important. And it's just awful to see the world, well, let's hope the Amazon isn't totally destroyed. You know, there's some hope there. I mean, it's not all bad news. Um, but there's a certain, you know, no going back with climate change. I mean, there's is the, the increase in temperatures is baked in now. To at least absolutely well, at take, least at least one point centuries to exactly. to return yeah. to whatever new carbon, normal carbon, yeah. carbon capture won't won't achieve very much. Um, so, I end my book saying, you know, we must we have a duty to be optimistic because if yes. we give up hope, we won't try to change things. We mustn't be so hopeful that we become complacent and stop trying. No, obviously, we all feel terribly helpless in the face of climate change. But what it means is, you know, we need to support political parties that are, you know, are trying to do something about climate change. And you have to start at home. I know, yes, you go out to the Middle East or somewhere and you see all this oil burning in the air and these enormous cars everywhere. You might be filled with despair, but no, we have to start at home. That's why I'm, you know, greatly admire German politics on the whole at the moment. You know, it's not without problems. But the political situation in England is just grotesque compared to what's going on in countries like Germany. Very ironical, because a lot of the German constitution was designed by the British, you know. And it all came to a head. I mean, in Germany, is we have a big chance now, I think, to because we have to wean ourselves of fossil fuels exactly. in whatever form. Yeah, yeah. So we have to make that transition, which we yes. haven't managed to make no. in the last decade. Well, Putin so, hasn't helped. You know. Yeah, but Putin may help. Well, in the longer in term, the short term, yes. though, but longer term, yes. 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 Yeah. And, well, that's the German perspective. Well, England has different problems. It's now you have an NHS strike and, you know... Uh, we have, I mean, the problem on. is... Well, I'm not, you know, I've no, I've never voted Conservative and never would. And I come from a sort of left-wing family tradition. Not not sort of socialist, but, but centre-left. Um, but the problem is the present government, the criterion for being a member of the government, was supporting Brexit, which means either you're incredibly stupid or you're completely venal and corrupt or you're just totally cynical. There's no virtue. <laughs> you know, mm. it's a terrible, terrible IQ test for appointing a government. Mm. And you feel it in everyday life. Oh, yes. For me, it's the first time I'm back to Britain. I yeah. lived here for five years yeah. and uh, post-Brexit. 
And of course, the friends I meet, they are... They don't even want to discuss it. Well, it's so, like, it's so painful. Yeah. But, you know, Britain, I'm I'm immensely proud of many aspects of Britain. I mean, yes, we're on And there's a lot to be proud there's of. There's a lot to be proud of, yes. particularly the empirical, pragmatic, philosophical Absolutely. tradition, which, which is... We One. Germans are supposed to have, but actually we don't have it. No, you're a bit bit more idealistic. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 yeah, we are, we are, yeah. we are, we are yeah. thought to be the super rational people, but no, you're, no, you're not. not. No, you're all driven by this or this or Weltschmerz and yes. everything else, you know. But then we have this post-imperial heritage of make Britain like Trump, mm. make Britain great again, and great social inequality, um, and income and wealth inequality, all of which are problems. And a declining industrial. I mean, it's a heavily industrialized country. And, of course, economically, Brexit's been a catastrophe. Mm. We talked a lot about failures today yeah. and rec recognizing failures. Well, I think for Germany, it was quite easy. Not easy, but 1945 was so, such a total defeat exactly. that exactly. there was only a new yeah. beginning. I mean, I've often I read a lot about the Allied bombing of the, the German cities. I mean, we, we despise the Russians for bombing... Ukrainian civilians, but mm. damn it, in the Second World War. Oh, um, that was a different league altogether. I know, but it still was yes. killing civilians. Yes, you know, and was seen as a valid way of fighting yeah. the war. Yes. Um, whether it was or not, historians still argue about endlessly. But as you say, the defeat of Germany was so total, so utter and complete, even though quite a lot of Nazis managed to get reemployed in. Sure, sure. In, in, in West Germany and everything else. You had you could only you had to go off in a different direction. Yes, you know. And in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it wasn't a total defeat. No, it wasn't. A lot of it. No, it wasn't. It was uh, lived on in a way. Yeah, exactly. And above all, the KGB and Vasilovsky lived on. Yes. Yeah. All right, Henry. My last question, and I already framed it before. You experienced a lot of love, compassion. I have to think of Tanya's mother, yes. Katya. Yeah who not only forgave you, mm. she, she, she loved, me. She yeah. loved you. Mm. And I loved her and Tanya. You know, I had them here in my own home. And, you know. and when you looked at the brains, the thick cream, mm. is it for you discrepancies? Sometimes no, you had it, was, it was when I first did my first brain operation as a trainee in 1980, 81. I thought, wow, you know, I, this is a terrible head injury and I was sucking out bits of damaged brain with a sucker. And I thought, this is, you know, memories and dreams and reflections going up the sucker. Which it is in your belief. Which it is. Yes. And I thought, well, wow. But you rapidly drop that. You stop having all these metaphysical thoughts. You just yes. know, I want to do as little damage as possible. Um, and you stop thinking about that. And it's just, well, it's a brain. It's a solid matter. But, Somehow lurking behind that solid matter is there's, us. There's a patient you'll be talking to after the op, and there's a terrified family outside waiting to see what's happened. And you never quite forget that. But you can't operate if you spend the whole time thinking such sorts or worrying. You have to be... Which is why I found being under, mis under cruise missile fire in Kiev reminded me of operating. Because you live incredibly intensely. You're focused... You're living so intensely in the present. Um, and that's rather... Addictive? Yes, yes, yes. I think many war journalists are like that. And some of the 
doctors I know who work in war zones admit uh, they are addicted. But uh, neurosurgery is not a war zone specialty. And I'm now well past my best by date, so I no longer have that temptation. But having said that, going out to working in Ukraine, I also worked in Sudan as well as Nepal, um, I was I was attracted by controlled danger. Essentially, I'm a coward. I get easily frightened, but I like to sort of frighten myself in a controlled sort of way. But it's interesting because we've been talking about living in the present, and this is a way of living in the present. Yes. I always had yes. that when I, I don't know, when I was in Ukraine or when I was working very intensely, the the past and the future doesn't Don't, exist. Exactly. It's the present. Exactly. It becomes addictive yeah. because it's it's come out somehow freeing. It's right? free of it's free of anxiety. It's free of ruminations and morbid thoughts. You're just thinking about what's in front of you, and somehow the sun shines more brightly. You know everything is more intense and clear. You live very intensely when you operate, particularly down a microscope, as I try to describe in my first book. You know, as a, looking at these big threatening blood vessels, which in reality are just one or two millimeters in size, but down the microscope are as big They're as huge, a house. You know? yeah. At any moment it might blow and everything floods with blood. You know, It's exciting. I look at you, I still see the spark and the light <laughs> in your face. Henny Marsh, thank you very much. Carl, it's a pleasure. This was my conversation with neurosurgeon Henry Marsh. It resonated a lot with me when I left his lovely home in South Wimbledon. Henry said that looking back now, he thinks his life is complete. I'm in the middle of my life, but in a not so distant future, I will have to look back too. What would I say? It's frightening, but also reassuring. I don't know what you, dear listener, feel about that. For close-up, I will interview guests in German and English. You will find all episodes at superelectric.de slash closeup. For English, please go to closeuppodcast.com. You will find the links in the show notes. Your support is extremely welcome. Please subscribe to Closeup Plus at Apple Podcasts. Every subscription will help. You will then get all episodes in advance and without any ads. Thank you for your help. I'll be back soon. Super Electric.